Lord Jesus, as we come now this morning to sit together with your word, would you give us yourself and pour out your spirit, we pray, O Lord, in your own name. Amen. This morning, friends, we walk in the story of two strong women from the ancient world. They were both in the same part of the ancient world, and they both were in dire circumstances. They were both in difficulties that constrained them, and they both made the ultimate decision. In the end, they both decided to die. Their stories and their lives, however, are also radically different from one another. The question we're going to ask this morning is what changed in the world between the first of these strong women from the ancient world and several hundred years later, the second of these strong women from the ancient world. The first one was the founder and queen of one of the great cities of the ancient world. In her day, it was the seafaring terror of the Mediterranean. It was the leading city. It was Carthage. Carthage, which sits on a high hill above the Bay of Tunis, looking out over the azure blue of the Mediterranean. It's a gorgeous setting. And she was queen and founder of Carthage, an imposing figure. All was well until one day, on a ship coming into the harbor, came Aeneas. And Aeneas, his destiny was to go and to found the Roman race, which would then found the city of Rome. But the gods decided to play a little bit for sport. So they mingled Aeneas and Dido's they mingled their feelings together and got them involved with one another, and they became lovers. But the day came when Aeneas realized he had to go fulfill his destiny, and so sure enough, he got on his boat and he sailed away. Dido, in a fit of despair and with depression, with the sense that the fates had closed in on her and the horizon had shut down, depending on which version you read, as she watches him sail away, either she stabs herself or she casts herself off the hill. The irony is that Dido was the one who had everything. She was the one who had status, who had power, who was the queen, and yet the gods toyed with her, and the fates got the better of her. Aeneas goes and he does found the Roman race. They found the city of Rome. Eventually, Rome and Carthage become blood enemies. The Romans presume that it's their calling to bring order and stability into the world, and they think that Carthage is the greatest threat to that. So eventually, at great cost, they conquer Carthage and they occupy North Africa. North Africa becomes to them one of their several grain-supplying regions that keep the whole thing ticking. So when their governor, several hundred years later than the governor they're up to, when he dies, they choose the senior tax collector, a guy named Hilarionis, to take his place. And of course they do because the taxes in grain are so important for them. So Hilarionis is early on in his reign. He's, he's eager to demonstrate to the people that he's good and trustworthy. He wants to secure his, uh, his power and his, and his populace and his base. So Hilarionis decides to exact from them a, 
a, um, the sacrifice and to throw a gladiatorial game, the two great things that the Romans would do. So he decreed, as happened all around the empire, that they would have to go into the temple, that they would take a handful of incense, and that they would throw it onto the fire and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. But the problem, Harianus discovered, was that some people weren't willing to do that. There were these people in that day that were following a man who himself had been a part of a minority people who were crazy enough to proclaim that there was only one God. They followed a man who'd been part of the Jews, who were from a, a nowhere other backwater despised grain supplying region of the empire. And these Jews proclaimed that there was only one God, but there was one of them who had risen up, who in a confusing story to Hilarionus, that somehow then the Jews had turned on him themselves, had compelled the Romans to crucify him, to publicly shame him, and to try to say to everyone, don't have anything to do with this man. But it hadn't worked. The man had died, everyone agreed about that, but some people said that, lo and behold, the man had been vindicated by the Spirit of God and brought back to life. And there are these people in, apparently now, even Hilarionus' own city of Carthage far across the sea who are following this man, Jesus. And they, against all reason and simple logic and good order, refuse to simply throw the incense on and proclaim Caesar is Lord because they're always proclaiming this Jesus is Lord. So Hilarionus has a problem because he finds out that some of these people can be quite courageous, even incorrigible. We know what happens next because one of the people who got arrested was a young woman, a strong young woman, not like Dido. She was not from the capital city, though she was brought there to be tried. She was from a town about 20 miles away. Unlike Dido, she didn't have any particular power. She didn't have any particular status. As a matter of fact, she was probably an unwed mother. She had a very young child, and she's still living under the control of the paterfamilias, the father of the whole family. And in spite of this and her difficult circumstances, somehow she finds community with these followers of this one Jesus. And so she refuses to cast the incense on, and she and her companions are arrested and they're brought to Carthage and they will have to go one by one and appear before Hilarionus. As the days pass, in the early days, they're in a, what we would call a minimum security situation and so her father comes to see her and he tries to talk her out of it. He says to her, think about my gray head, think about my older years, think about your family, think about your child, you're embarrassing us. We won't be able to have any status. We won't be able to speak in town. We will be humiliated if you carry on with this nonsense. She replies, I cannot be other than I am, and I am a Christian. Somehow this young woman has found this incredible sense of self and courage and voice. She is the first woman the first Christian, the earliest Christian woman's voice that we have, her journal, Perpetua, 
is her name, and she wrote her journal. She may be the earliest woman to have written her own story and her own feelings about them of any that we have in all of history. Perpetua tells how when her father came to see her eventually in, a, in one of these amazing flips that Jesus does where the first become last and the last become first, her father ends up basically throwing a tantrum. He's pulling out his hairs of his beard. He's banging his fists on the ground. And people who in their stereotypes would say that the young woman was the, the one in histrionics, it flips around and it's her father, this dignified, older Roman society man who is reduced to histrionics. Perpetua and her companions are taken before Hilarionus. They're taken to the Baisra Hill, the Roman Forum. The Roman Forum, ironically, it's built on that same hill where Dido's palace was, where probably she cast herself from the very same hill. And the Roman Forum, like all Roman architecture, was designed to communicate in structure the power and the order of the empire. It was imposing, it was large, it was beautiful, it was a wonder. The ceiling beams were so long and straight that even in the ancient world, people wondered how did they get them up there? How did they do that? And here's this little girl from a town, this young woman, and she has nothing and she's in an incredibly vulnerable place. And yet she comes before Hilarionis and she is asked, are you a Christian? And she says, yes. She and her companions then, as they go back to jail, they rejoice because in their mind, they have passed the first test. How did this young woman come to have this courage and this sense of self? That's our question for this morning. These two ancient strong women, these two strong women in the ancient world, who, both of whom in very difficult circumstances making in some ways the same choice to die, but in other ways completely different choice for completely different reasons with a completely different sense of what it was all about. What has changed in the world between Dido and Perpetua? The thing that has changed in the world between Dido and Perpetua is that there has been a change in the gods. It's no longer a pantheon of godlets, so you have to worry about which gods you've forgotten to make happy and to placate and who get involved in people's lives for sport and move the fates against them and want to see how that's all going to play out. No, now it's that Jesus Christ has walked the earth. In Jesus, God has visited the earth and has given himself as a free gift in love for the good of people. And that is making ripples all across the world. It's so different that people who proclaim it have to even make up new ways to do so. The passage we heard in Paul this morning from Galatians, the salutation at the beginning of the letter, the part that we skip over because we think, well, he's just saying hello, grace and peace to you. That little bit, grace and peace, is unique as we, as far as we know, in the ancient world as the greeting of a letter. 
Paul, the word grace in Greek is the same as the word gift. And Paul is saying, <clears throat> this is gift. God has given this gift. The Roman culture was highly structured by class and status. It was a, a very strong honor-shame culture. It's been called a vertical culture, and everyone knew. You just knew. It's the way cultures work. You knew where you fell in the order of things. Paul, in essence, says to the Roman culture, you think you got some status? You think you've got something vertical? This is vertical. God comes down all the way from heaven, and he comes to the earth, and then he lives among us and loves us and suffers with us and proclaims, when I am then vertical lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. And Paul says, it's this gift that causes peace, gift and peace to you. Those three letters launch then Paul's whole letter, and those three words, rather, launch his whole letter. And they tell us why in Galatians Paul is so impassioned. Paul is going to say to them with exasperation, how can you abandon this? This is amazing. God has given you this as free gift. How can you trade this in on another system, a different system that's just going to make you perform, that's just going to make you aware of where you fit in and have to worry about that when God has given you this gift freely? And he's going to confront Peter over this, and it's going to lead to the first council of the church, and he's going to proclaim to them, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not be bound again by a yoke of slavery, but stand firm in that freedom. He's going to say to them, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, rich nor poor, but the community, everyone, is made equal by this incredible gift which has come down from heaven. Paul is going to, as many others do as well, have to come up with new language to explain the amazing, wonderful thing that God has done and has revealed to him in Jesus Christ. So friends, we need to touch two more bases. We need to find out what happened then when Perpetua and her companions stood up to Hilarionus, told him, yes, they were Christians and were sentenced that on May the 7th in the year 203, they would go to the Colosseum. What happened on that day in the Colosseum? And we also need to ask the question, how did they come to be so strong in their inner person? Hilarionus had a problem <clears throat> in trying to handle these folks, but he had a trick up his sleeve. His son's 14th birthday was coming. And so he decided to throw gladiatorial games, the best way to gather the populace to secure his base. These were the great spectacle that happened in the Roman world. And about 25 years before, a law had been passed that helped Hilarionus because the way these games worked is that the aristocratic class would pay for the participants who would be cast into the arena for the bloodlust of all the people. And they would either buy gladiators or they would buy criminals, and the new law let them pay 
a sixth the price for a criminal that even a fifth-rate gladiator would cost. And so the people knew when they came who had thrown their party. The people felt self-righteously indignant. We're not those criminals. And at the same time, they received satisfaction for their bloodlust. So what happened on May the 7th? Humor me for a few moments. I want to read to you what happened from this book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. He tells it so well. The amphitheater was a wonder of Roman engineering that hardly by accident replicated the verticality of society. In the amphitheater's higher section, the populace, seated according to wealth and influence, filled the stands overlooking the arena. At the upper section's visual center were the benefactors, the local decurions, magistrates, and landowners who sponsored the games as an act of benevolence that both entertained the public and bolstered their own authority and prestige. In the lower section, far below in the arena, were the victims, animals, gladiators, criminals who would fight to entertain the populace. Some of the gladiators and all of the criminals would die. So on May 7th, 203, Carthaginians went to the amphitheater to participate in a public event. There were people behaving normally, thousands of them acting according to local custom and habit. They went to the arena to be entertained, to pay honor to the emperor, the local aristocrats, to get food and drink, to watch their equivalent of football on New Year's Day. They anticipated no surprises. The animals would gore each other, the gladiators would fight skillfully and die well, and the dehumanized criminals would cringe before being displaced by an animal's teeth or the executioner's sword. The day's events would confirm society's vertical values and degrade those who in some way threatened them. But into this world came something unanticipated. As the onlookers peered into the arena, they, benefactors and ordinary citizens, saw criminals who were not hardwired as the dominant society was. They saw people, Christians, who embodied uncommon allegiances and responded with inexplicable reflexes. As a result, the Christians behaved in ways that subverted the carefully choreographed planning of the birthday party and profoundly challenged the values on which it was based. Because of the Christians' presence, the liturgy of the games did not bind all of society together. There was a group bound together by a superstitio, that embodied an unsettling alternative. The final day's activities began with the Christians marching into the amphitheater. They had already spent some weeks in prison. This would have given them time to plan how they would behave when in the spotlight. It is likely that they decided to, con to defy conventional stereotypes by behaving confidently without cringing. They would march into the arena purposefully and joyfully, Perpetua, as the one who picked up the pen to finish her story, tells us, Perpetua, whose gaze stared down the spectators, could have planned to behave this way. Or their behavior might have been reflexive, because there were things they could not prepare for. As they filed into the amphitheater, they didn't know what to expect. They had to improvise. So when the choreographers demanded that they put on costumes, the male Christians as priests of the god Saturn and women Christians as priestesses of the goddess Ceres, their objection must have been instinctive. They would not be deprived of their own identity. 
they would not be cast as pagan hierophants in the religious dimension of the games. Perpetua spoke for them all. Now we have come here of our own will, so our freedom might not be constrained. In the face of their non-cooperative approach, the tribune relented. Later, when Perpetua and Felicitas were both stunned at by a maddened animal, Perpetua woke up, went to Felicitas, raised her up, and the two stood side by side. The Christians communicated bodily. They could not control what was going on around them, but they could be themselves. Their word was in their bodies, individually and communally. They were in the arena, a world in which customarily each person would fend for himself or herself, fighting alone against gladiators or animals, but the Christians embodied commonality. In the amphitheater, they were in a societal and architectural setting that loudly asserted verticality, but their bodies expressed horizontality. In a world that gave prime place to genetic family, they called each other sister and brother. They loved each other passionately and were willing to die for one another. Soon, when Perpetua and Felicitas were Stripped naked and a provoked, maddened cow tossed them. The crowd recoiled in horror. These two women were suffering, one of them delicate and young, and the other one immediately postpartum. So at the crowd's demand, they were brought back and dressed. But then the men were brought forward, and when they suffered, the crowd's response was less sympathetic. When the catechist Saturus, their teacher in the faith, who had voluntarily joined them in prison and gone to death with them, When he bled profusely after an attack by a leopard, the crowd responded with the rhythmic chant, Salam Lotum, Salam Lotum, had a great bath, had a great bath. At the very end, after most of the Christians had been seriously wounded by the animals, the crowd's interest was still lively, for they asked that all the Christians be brought to a central spot where they could see clearly as the gladiator's sword finished them off. They saw the executions but they also saw the Christians mustering the strength of body and will to stand up, to gather themselves as a group in the specified spot and give a final embodied witness. These disparate people, women and men, slave and free, poor and advantaged, kissed each other so that they might bring their martyrdom to completion with the kiss of peace. Exhausted and in pain though they were, in extremis, the prisoners did reflexively virtually on autopilot, what they had been habituated to do in their services of worship. They exchanged the kiss of peace, embodying a love that transcended social barriers. Friends, Perpetua's story is an amazing story. And we tend to put the emphasis on the moment where she is asked, are you a Christian? Which is certainly one of the climatic moments of the story. But how did they come to have such strength of person and such presence of mind, even in the arena, even in their last times? Quickly, they practiced four things beforehand, long beforehand. They memorized scriptures. They would memorize where Paul would say, this is a saying, it's trustworthy and true, that Jesus Christ was resurrected and so on and so on. They memorized those kinds of early sayings. They memorized the Sermon on the Mount. They believed that Jesus' sermon 
was not given to them as some abstract ideal, was, but, but was given to them for the living. So they memorized these scriptures that they might be inside them and that they could tell themselves these true, th- true things as they passed their way through life. They prayed and they fasted. They fasted not to convince God to love them more or not because they thought that there was something wrong with themselves. They fasted to toughen themselves. They fasted in order to take control over their own body in order that in a moment of trial, they would know that they had strength. They joined one another not only when times were good, but also in their sufferings. And so they became family to one another. And finally, what they did in this, in the Holy Eucharist, they deeply understood. They understood that they were telling again and walking with Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, and the expectation of his coming again, so that they were tuned ahead into the new world that God would bring. And that kind of training before the extreme moment not only prepared them, but also made a community that made ripples across every layer of the society of their day simply because they were so full of the gift of Jesus Christ. Friends, let's pray. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for you are the gift. You have been so good to us. We pray, Lord, that you would simply warm up our hearts and fill us with an awareness of who you are and the gift that you are. In your own name, Lord, we pray.